For the electronic copy, there should be an electronic copy uploaded to the resource section um, for the class. They got to keep an eye on that clock. Remember, it's I get, yeah, it's five five minutes slow, right? Yeah. Roughly yeah. six minutes. I got to make sure I don't uh, keep you six minutes over. Then <laughs> that's dangerous to give a teacher clock. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you, John. <laughs> All right. Uh, before, I'm going to pray here in a second. Before we get started, though, with the word of prayer, I, I was asked to give you an announcement. So, uh, Pastor Ken asked me to announce that the Saturdays, Saturday's Pioneer Club Day camp has been canceled uh, due to expected inclement weather. That's exactly how I got the announcement. So, I'm, I'm hoping you know what that means. The Saturday's Pioneer Club Day camp, assuming that's for kids, right? So, if you knew of kids that were involved, uh, the, the plan is that that's going to have to be canceled for this coming Saturday. All right, so you want to keep that in mind. Sure, absolutely. Thank you. Absolutely. Everybody got the notes? Yeah, it's, it's tricky. I tried that one time, and I had our time, too. Yeah. There we go. All right, let's pray together. Father, I'm glad to be here tonight. I'm grateful that uh, you have saved sinners like me through your son and what he has done for us. I pray that tonight as we think about his work, that he would be honored, that you would use your words to shape us to become more like him. I pray for the other uh, ministries that will be going on here at this church and Back at my home church, I just pray that everyone involved would be encouraged and given boldness and clarity, and that you would just continue to build a great community for Jesus Christ's glory. And we ask for this in his name. Amen. All right, so as you recall, we were right towards the end of chapter 3 when we left off. We looked at some pretty familiar verses a passage that sometimes has been called the most important paragraph ever written, where Paul begins to start explaining how God, as a perfect judge, can remain right, always doing what's right, and at the same time tell us, who are sinners, that we've been declared right. And the way he can do that is through the propitiation of Jesus. That Jesus Christ, as the NIV puts it, has been put forward as a atoning sacrifice, or some of our Bibles, a propitiation. There was wrath that you and I rightly deserved. It was, it was good, it was right for God to punish us for, for our sins. For Him to ignore those sins actually would have been wrong, but He took that wrath that we deserved and He placed it on Christ. Christ died as a substitutionary atonement for you and I. And that's where we left off at the, I think we had gotten down to about verse 26 in chapter uh, 3. Uh, Paul also said that this allowed God to main, re, 
retain his righteousness all through the Old Testament era because scattered here and there, it was never a very large group, but here and there, there had been some believers during the Old Testament period who had saving faith in God, took him at his word, and they were not held accountable for their sins. They were also forgiven of their sins. And that was, again, because of the atoning work of, of Jesus, because God knew that it was always his plan, his decree, that someday his son would come, become a man, and die for sinners like you and me. So then this leads into this new section that kind of, I think, starts in verse 27. So perhaps our chapter break is a little unfortunate here, because I think in verse 27 we've got a break. I'll, let me just read the first paragraph there for us to get us started. So this is what Paul says in Romans 3.27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. So there's uh, one thing that we have to keep in mind, I think, as we go through this paragraph, and that's that Paul seems to be using the word law in a different way than he's primarily been using it before. So before he's been speaking of like laws as in commandments, sometimes maybe referring to the fact that God as the creator has a moral law that he's given to all of us, that we all have a responsibility to keep. Sometimes, and this may be his most common way of using it, he's very specific. He's not just thinking of the moral law in general, but he's thinking specifically of the Mosaic law, the law that was given to the people of Israel. And sometimes in our Bibles or even my notes, I might do represent that with a capital L, just to be specific. But here I think he's using law as in a principle, a law, a principle, something that's always true. It's generally true. So, for example, if I had this pencil and I dropped it, I could drop this a hundred times, right? And you would always expect that it will fall. It's never, as far as we know, going to start elevating. Well, why is that? Because there's this law, there's this principle. We call it the law of gravity, okay? That's us observing God's law, or God's world, God's creation, the way he's made things, and we're describing it as a principle that's generally true. And that's how Paul's using the word law here. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't be too hard on Paul because we use the same word in several different ways as well. So you could translate this, by what principle is boasting excluded? Boasting, as I say there in the notes, you know, it probably was a particular temptation for the Jewish people because of all the privileges that they've been given, but it's not a problem that's unique to them. All humans are prone to boasting. We like to brag in what we've accomplished, and it's human nature to create religious systems that put the emphasis on themselves, or on ourselves, on what we've accomplished. But Paul says here there's a principle at work, just as sure as the principle of gravity 
that excludes boasting. So he says, well, what kind of principle would do that? The principle that requires works, in verse 27, he says no, because of the principle that requires faith. This has been the principle that's been consistent all through God's dealings with mankind. There's not a new way of salvation now in the New Testament era. It's always been by God's grace on the basis of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross, and it's received by us through faith. It's us just reaching out an empty hand, and receiving something that Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. So that's the first couple little bullet points there under verses 27 through 31. But then in verse 29, Paul then asks the question. So I'm there towards the, the bottom of page 25 in the notes. He asks the question in verse 29 and points out that God saves both Gentiles and Jews. So he says in verse 29, Or is God the God of Jews only? It's a rhetorical question. It assumes no. He's also the God of Gentiles as well. This one God will declare both Jewish and Gentile people through the same means. It's their faith. And he makes that very clear there in verse 30. So finally, this, this fictional opponent, this diatribe partner that he's been going back and forth with, he asks another question in verse 31. He asks whether this principle of faith abolishes the law. And here with the, the capital L, the Mosaic Law. You see what he's thinking here? Well, if this has always been the way God saves people, and if he would even save Gentiles the same way, well, then what does that say about the law of Moses? Is this the kind of principle or is this the kind of law that would just make the Mosaic law worthless? Paul has the same type of argument that he confronts in the book of Galatians. But Paul's answer here, it's going to be quick, and then he's going to give a more complete answer later. But his answer initially is not at all. Absolutely not. Rather, we uphold the law. At this point, Paul doesn't explain what he means by uphold the law or establish the law. A complete answer is going to come when we get to chapter 6. But Paul mean, might at least hint toward an answer in his discussion in Romans 4 about Abraham and especially David. So this doesn't actually abolish the law or exclude the law. It actually establishes or upholds the law. He'll get to the full answer in chapter 6, but kind of an initial answer is, well, look at these examples of people in the Old Testament who were also saved this way. So then that leads us into to chapter 4 and verse 1. Let me just read a little bit there at the top of the page from our, from our textbook. It says, The writers of the Old Testament and Jews after them regularly traced their national and spiritual standing back to Abraham. Abraham, it's, it wouldn't be an overstatement to say he's a really big deal for the Jewish people. We see this in the Gospels, remember, when they take great pride in referring to themselves as sons of Abraham. Abraham is, is their patriarch. Abraham is the one they, they trace their lineage back. So therefore, if Paul's Gospel is to make sense of the Bible as a whole... He has to show how it stands in continuity with God's promises to Abraham. 
This he seeks to show in Romans chapter 4. So if you could show somehow that Abraham was saved a different way, that if he somehow wasn't saved through this gospel message, that would seem then to blow up Paul's whole argument. So Paul's going to confront that argument head on, and he's going to say, no, your father Abraham, in whom you have a great deal of pride, he also was saved this exact way. As a sinner for whom Christ died and someone who received the benefits of Christ's work through faith. So let's start out there at the first bullet point. Abraham might have appeared to be an example that contradicted Paul's teaching in chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. So the teaching in, in chapter 3, remember, if you recall, is that we're all sinners. We're all in the same boat. And since we all had the same problem, we all need the same solution. This might surprise us to hear, though, that some people, in, Jewish people, especially in uh, Paul's day, would have claimed that Abraham didn't sin. They actually would have gone as far as to hold up Abraham as just a, a paradigm of virtue, uh, an example of someone who's lived a very clean and perfect life. This is just one example of this type of thought. So this is from a Jewish writing that we think was written somewhere between the 2nd century B.C. to the 1st century A.D. So it's either written right before uh, Jesus and Paul's life, or it's actually written at almost the exact same time. And here the writer, he's praying to God. He says, Therefore you, O Lord, God of the righteous, have not appointed repentance for the righteous, for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who did not sin against you, but you have appointed repentance for me, who am a sinner. So the, the idea of repentance is a pretty common theme in Jewish literature. They knew that all of the problems that they were under, the, the Roman occupation, all the corruption among the chief priests and the Sadducees, all the issues that they were facing were covenant curses, and the solution to them were their repentance. And so the religious people among the group would have acknowledged, yes, we need to repent. But this guy is saying, it's just us that need to repent, right? You pick up on that? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have nothing to repent of because they didn't sin. Well, we know that just doesn't match Scripture, does it? We've read the book of Genesis. Those three characters did sin. Jacob especially, his, main, his name means deceiver, right? They were sinners. Yes? I was just going to say, you know, yeah. Yes, yes. They were bad news. But, and this is the beauty of it, though, they were forgiven sinners, right? Just like us. They were forgiven sinners. I think especially in, in Jacob's life, you can almost trace this out. The point in his life where he finally wrestles physically with the pre-incarnate Christ, and he's actually converted. He's actually changed. As an old man, he can say to his sons, that he wishes that the angel who led him and shepherded him all of his days and led him to this spot would also bless his sons. So here as an older man, he's looking back at his life. All the zigs and zags due to his sin, he had an angel with him who shepherded him all of his days and brought him to this good point. Now he's wishing that that angel, who now we would call Jesus, would also be with his son. So he 
He's a center who's eventually saved by grace. He's definitely not a perfect man. And the same thing applies with Abraham. Abraham also is sometimes weak in his faith. All right? So let's go to the next bullet point there. It says, This declaration that Abraham was righteous is not recorded in Genesis 22 when Abraham offered Isaac in Genesis 22, but in Genesis 15 when Abraham believed the promise made to him by God. So let's just put the passage up here. I'll put it up on the screen, but you can also follow along in your Bibles. This is Romans chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. So Paul is pointing straight to the Old Testament Scriptures, the Hebrew Scriptures. You can see how that would be a very compelling argument if you're a Jewish person. He's basically saying, let's open up our Bibles and see what the Bible itself has to say. What do the Scriptures say? And then he quotes from Genesis 15, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. And we'll stop there for a second. In a little bit, we'll look at what he has to say about David. So he uses this word here, crediting. So it wasn't something that he earned. It wasn't a wage that he deserved, but it was something that was put on his account as a gift. Right now, my daughter's in college, so I'm having kind of flashbacks about my own time in college. You know, one of the issues in college is always trying to pay your bills. And one of the greatest gifts was sometimes you would go to the business office and the financial office and you realize that someone had credited something to your account. Someone would usually anonymously just put something on your bill. You didn't work for it. It wasn't a wage. It was just credited to you as a gift. That's the idea here. When we look at Abraham's life, or Isaac and Jacob, or even our own lives, we realize that we would never be able to stand before the judge and have him look at us and say, righteous. But we can have that credited to our account. We can be treated as if we were. That's the type of language here that Paul is using. It's a financial term. So that means then, the next point, Abraham had nothing to boast about. His salvation was gracious. If he had done something to earn his salvation, then God's grace would not have saved him. That's what he says there in verses 4 through 5. Instead of Abraham working for salvation, God looked upon Abraham, who was a sinner, and he declared him to be righteous, as if he had perfectly kept God's moral law when Abraham believed. That's going to be an important part of this argument. And it gets developed further in Galatians. I think Paul's more explicit about it there. But he points out that this happens before Abraham offers or is willing to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. Because I think if you'd asked some people in Paul's day, well, what did Abraham really do to deserve his standing? One answer would have been, well, he just always did what's good. Another answer might have been, well, look what he was willing to do with his son Isaac. I mean, that's a great demonstration of obedience, right? But Paul makes a point of saying that that actually happened later. That Genesis 15 comes before Genesis chapter 22. It's in Genesis 15 that Abraham is said to believe God and he's credited with righteousness. 
what he does later in his life is a fruit of his conversion. It's not actually the basis of why God declares him credit or uh, credits him with righteousness. Because look at verse five; it's up here on the screen. It's actually the ungodly. So he's including Abraham in this category of the ungodly who are credited with righteousness. We should not, let me go back to that last bullet point, we should not misunderstand the quotation from Genesis 15:6 to mean that faith was the basis of Abraham's justification or that faith itself is a work. So those would be two misconceptions. I think the second one is not something we would be prone to fall into. We wouldn't think of faith as a work because Paul always contrasts the two. The first one, though, is more of a subtle mistake that I think we could make. We could have the tendency to think we're saved because we had faith. So in a sense that the faith becomes the cause or becomes the basis. But in the scriptures, it's always the the instrument. It's always the means by which you're receiving it. The cause or the basis is always Christ's work. So it's not you have faith, and then because you have faith, that faith is credited as righteousness. No, when they talk about faith and crediting it for righteousness, it's always just a shorthand. It's a very quick way of saying you received the benefit through faith. So Paul here is speaking of a system that requires him to produce nothing as its cause but as when we get into chapter 6, he will talk about necessary fruit as evidence. All he has to do is reach out in faith for God's good gift. I'm quoting there from Morris's commentary. So that's the first example he gives is Abraham. But the second example up here on our slide is David. Let me just pick up reading there. It says, David says the same thing. When he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. He says, and now he's quoting from the psalm, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Again, we've read the story of David's life. Was David a perfect man? No, absolutely not. He made some horrible mistakes and he suffered horrible consequences for those mistakes in this life. But when God looked down at his life, he is covered by Christ. Christ's righteousness is also credited to David's account. And David, it seems to realize that. You know, it's always tough to know exactly what an Old Testament writer knows. Until you get to Isaiah, you don't have real explicit statements about the substitutionary atonement. But I think we should underestimate what they knew also. They had a belief in a God who was merciful and was providing a way for them to be forgiven. And they trusted in that God that if they repented, that he was able to provide forgiveness. And here is David's own words. Blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against him. So it's that same kind of financial terminology, this counting that shows up in the Genesis passage. I'll stop there for a second before we get to the next passage. Any questions so far? So that takes us through verse 8 of chapter 4. If not, let's jump into the next paragraph there, verse 9. 
So he, he deals here also with a question of circumcision. Remember, that's so important for his readers because it's probably a divisive issue back in Rome. I think that's a reasonable assumption. Thinking back to our first class together when we tried to think through some of the purposes of the letter, remember we said that one of the things that likely has happened is that, remember, the Jewish people were all kicked out of Rome at one point because they seemed to have been arguing among themselves over the Christ. The emperor was just like, I'm not going to settle this. You're just all going to leave. That's why Aquila and Priscilla meet up with Paul in Corinth, because even though they're from Rome, eventually the next emperor says you all can come back. But you can imagine what's happened in the meantime. You had a period of time where the church was exclusively Gentile and probably growing. And then when the Jewish people come back, they're now a minority. They have all kinds of strange customs. They're looked on as being too tight, too conservative, maybe labeled as legalistics. They, on the other hand, look at their other fellow Christians as being too loose, too liberal, and especially would have bothered them if they weren't willing to be circumcised, because that was something that their ancestors had died for. During the Syrian occupation, which was only 150 years in the past, people had been tortured to death rather than give up their circumcision. So it was very important to them. So Paul has to keep coming back to this issue, even though to us it might seem like a sidelight. And this is what he says there in verses 9 through 12. Let me read those for us. He says, Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. You see how that's so important? And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but also who follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. That's a mouthful, I know. But the, the general gist of it is Paul, Paul actually believes that Genesis records literal history. He believes that if you go back to the book of Genesis, that it not only tells you exactly what happened, but it actually sets things in chronological order. And it's really important to him and to his argument that Abraham was credited with righteousness not only before he was willing to sacrifice Isaac, but also before he was circumcised. Whatever circumcision meant, it didn't mean that this was a means or a basis for Abraham's salvation. So I'll pick up the second point there. Circumcision served as a sign of the covenant with Abraham and as a seal for Abraham's faith, but it was not the basis for that faith. Circumcision, at least for Abraham, confirmed that justification had taken place. And I don't think we should understand Paul to mean that that's also going to be the same for us. It's not required of us as a seal of our faith. Paul's just saying that's what it did for him. The important part of his argument, though, is that it came afterwards. It wasn't actually the basis. But then, third point, since Abraham was justified before his circumcision, he can be, quote, the father of all who believe, but who have not been circumcised. Furthermore, because he was also later circumcised, he can be the father of those who are and have the same faith as him. 
So Paul just sees this as a remarkable instance of God's providence, where the same man who lived portions of his life as part of both groups, so to speak. He lived as a Gentile. Remember, when he's found, he's, he's just in Ur, the Chaldeans, worshiping idols like every other pagan. And God sovereignly and graciously saves him. And then it's only later in his life that he's circumcised. But it's during this first part of his life, when he first has the revelation of God that comes to him, and he takes God at his word, specifically when God tells him that he's going to have a child, even though he seems to be old, too old to have children. It's at that point that he is credited with righteousness. But now he can serve as a father to both groups, to everyone who has the same faith. So let me pick up in the middle of that paragraph. In other words, there is ultimately one family of people who have the kind of faith possessed by Abraham. And this family includes both Jewish people and Gentiles. So this is the way Paul puts it in Galatians 3.29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs together according to the promise. So when you were young, if you sang that Father Abraham song, you were, you were telling the truth. It actually was truth, not in a very literal, physical way, but in a spiritual sense, if we're following what Paul says here, there is a sense in which there is just one family of believers. Now, I think God also likes diversity within that. So when we read the end of the story, the book of Revelation, there's still kings, there's still nations. So when we get to the new heavens and the new earth, we're not just all one homogenous mass. There's still going to be some beauty and diversity because God likes that. I think there still will be countries, all right, different ethnicities, and a still a special place for the Jewish people. But in another sense, in a bigger sense, we will all be one family. We will be God's people, and he will be with us as our God. And that was because we had the same kind of faith that Abraham had. Okay? Let's go to the next section then. This is um, it's a little bit of a typo there. I realize that's not, uh, that's not verse 85 there. That's supposed to be, that was supposed to be 3 through uh, 15 or something like that. We'll just skip it. We'll pretend that didn't happen. We're just going to skip over that quickly. All right, we'll go to uh, 13 through 22. So this is the, the big argument. I'll give you kind of the overview on this slide. And then we'll work through it. So what, what point is Paul making in this paragraph? His main point is, I think, that the reason why Abraham can be the father of those who have faith. Remember, that's what he just left off saying in verse 12. Some of our Bibles, we got a little word for that starts verse 13. Those little connecting words are helpful. So he's giving for or he's giving the reason why he can just say that. The reason why is because the promise to Abraham did not come as part of the Mosaic Law. Well, that seems to be a puzzle. Well, why? Why is that important, Paul? Why is that a reason? Well, then he gives a reason for his reason. So verses 14 and 15, he gives another reason. He says, well, it's important because if the promise came through the law, nobody would receive it because the law only brings wrath. That's verses 14 and 15 in your Bible. You see what he's doing there? So, well, Abraham was promised a great blessing to the whole world. And God has to keep his promise. That promise to Abraham has to be true. But if the promise came through the law, nobody would get it. 
because no one keeps the law. Even Abraham wouldn't have been able to keep the law if he had lived in that time, right? Even Moses doesn't keep the law. Moses, remember, can't even go into the promised land because he disobeys God. No one is able to keep the law except for Christ. So because of that, the law always brings wrath. That's his point in verses 14 and 15. So if you're going to get the promise, you've got to get it another way. It has to come some way outside of the law. That's what he means by we can all have Abraham as our father, even if it's in a sense where we're not Jewish or we're not circumcised or we're not law-keeping. Then the end of that paragraph, verses 18 through 22, he's actually going to describe, well, what does the faith of Abraham look like? So let me read that. This is verses 18 through 22, because now we're getting down to it. If if you're with me so far, we're really supposed to have the kind of faith Abraham had. If you have the kind of faith Abraham had, that's the way that you receive this righteousness that can be credited to your account. Well, then that begs the question, what would that look like in my life? And this is his answer. He says in verse 18, Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it has been said to him. And here he's quoting from Genesis. So shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteous. So what's he saying there? Paul, or Paul's saying that Abraham received a promise, you're an old man, you don't have any children, but you're not only going to have children, you're going to have nations that descend from you. Large people groups will look back at you as your biological father. And remember, that's ultimately fulfilled not only through Isaac, but then also through Ishmael. But especially through Isaac, there's going to be a blessing that's not only biological, but it's spiritual. that will go to the whole world. But he can only receive that blessing. If he can only be that blessing to the world, is if he has children, and his body is as good as dead, right? But he doesn't waver in his faith. He actually believes that God is able to do that. For Abraham to believe that is just as great of a step of faith as believing that someone rises from the dead. A child out of a womb that can't produce a child, a child from a man that's too old to have children, it's the same as if you walked up to a corpse and that you believe that that corpse could come back to life. But when Abraham heard that, and I know if you read the story, it wasn't always great faith. There were ups and downs to it. So we have to accept the fact that Paul's speaking in general terms. But aren't you glad that that's how God does it? That when he looks at us, he's looking at generally at how our faith is and now how it might be in any given moment. But as a general view of Abraham's life, he was a man who believed. Even when he doubted, it would only last temporarily, and he would come back in repentance to his God, and he would trust. You actually can do this. And he, remember, he comes up with all kinds of crazy schemes of how he's going to do this, right? He's using his servants. He's doing different things. But all the while, he keeps coming back to the fact that God is the type of God who keeps his words and can do great things. It's that kind of trust in God 
that's present in everyone who's received righteousness from God. It's actually that faith that's the means or the instrument by which you do receive it. So he comes down here to the last uh, paragraph. Let me just read that last bullet point on page 28. We know from the story of Abraham recorded for us in Genesis that Abraham sometimes struggled with what God had promised. But when God viewed Abraham's entire life, it could be said in general to be the life of a man who did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. It's important to remember that it's not the strength or quality of our faith that makes it saving faith, but the object of that faith. We talked about that a little bit last semester in our Matthew class. Remember when Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration, his disciples are there, and they've been trying really, really hard to cast the demon out of that boy with the whole crowd standing there watching, so you know they were trying hard, and they can't do it. And then, and then Jesus just walks over and immediately does it. And they ask for greater faith. Remember, they say, we, we need stronger faith. And that's not their problem. Jesus says, you don't need stronger faith. If you had actually the faith of a mustard seed, you could have done this. His point there is you don't need stronger faith. You just need the right object of your faith. Sometimes we make the same mistake, right? We just, need to, we just need to trust harder. We just need a stronger faith. We need to be strengthened in our faith. And we might be well-intentioned in using that kind of language, but what we really need to know is how strong is our object or strong, how strong is that person that we're looking to. What we need to do, is, as the writer of Hebrews says, is to fix our eyes back on Jesus. He's able to do anything, right? Anything good, anything consistent with his will, he's able to do. So we don't need stronger faith, per se. What we actually just need is the right object. So then, Paul goes from Abraham to us, okay? So he makes a great step here. He says that when those words there in Genesis 15 were written, they weren't just written for Abraham, they were written for us. This is what he says in verse 23. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. You see how he so seamlessly moves from Abraham to us? Because it's the same type of faith. It has the same object. It's, it's faith in God, right? It's taking God at his word. It's you hearing something about what God can do for you. And it doesn't fit with any of the evidence that you can see in this world. You explain it to your friends and neighbors, and it sounds like foolishness. It sounds silly. It sounds unscientific. You actually believe that a man was in a grave for three days and then came back to life. And you actually believe that his death wasn't just a murder, but it was also for your justification. That It was actually the death that you deserve. And you believe that when he raised from the dead, that God wasn't just vindicating him. He was doing that, but he was also vindicating you. That you also were being vindicated. You were being justified. It was God's way of saying... Death has no hold on Christ. He doesn't deserve to be dead. 
I'm going to raise him. I don't think that's raise, not rise. I'm going to raise him, and I'm also going to raise other people with him. That's what Paul means here, that you, like Abraham, believed in the God who could raise the dead. You believed in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. You believed in him who was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. All right, that's the end of chapter 4. We got a few more minutes before the break. I could take some questions or we could jump into the next section. Everyone's good? Quiet bunch tonight? Maybe maybe I shouldn't complain about that, right? Sometimes you get what you ask for and then get tough questions. All right, let's go a little further then. Let's go to chapter 5. This is the one that's going to be tough, right? All kinds of tough questions here. So let me read a little bit. This isn't out of our uh, textbook, but this is another commentary that the same writer wrote. So let me just read a little bit here to get us started. And what we're trying to do here is not only think paragraph by paragraph, but also think about how whole sections fit together in this letter. The letter's long, and we can't read it each time we meet, but you do have to remember that it's one letter. So it all has a logical flow to the whole thing. So this is what the writer Moo says. He says, both chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, and chapter 8, 18 through 39, affirm against the threat of tribulation and suffering the certainty of the Christian's final salvation because of God's love, the work of Christ, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This theme, this hope of sharing in God's love, brackets all of chapters 5 through 8. So he's making an argument here that I think is correct that Paul's very carefully worded and crafted his letter so that it has one of these parallel structures that we've talked about. So the things he talks about in chapter 5, he comes back to in chapter 8, and when he talks about some of the things in 6 and 7, they're really the heart of it. So this is a carefully crafted piece of literature. Assurance of glory is then the overarching theme in this second major section of Romans. The verdict of justification, which Jews relegated to the day of judgment, has, Paul proclaims, already been rendered over the person who believes in Jesus. So we don't have to wait until the final judgment to find out what God is going to say about us. We can know tonight, we can know today, that we've already been declared not guilty. That's what he means here, that the the verdict of the final judgment has been moved back in time, and you've already received it. Paul proclaims already has rendered over the person who believes in Jesus. But can that verdict, hidden, in quotes, hidden to the senses, guarantee that one will be delivered from God's wrath when it is poured out in the judgment? So that's the thing, right? Is that going to be enough for you? Is that going to be enough for me? Is it going to be enough to know that God's declared us not guilty when we haven't actually heard him say it, when we actually haven't received it like a certificate? and when we actually are going through a bunch of difficulties in this life. So what's the answer? Is it going to be enough? Yes. Paul's going to say yes. Yes, affirms Paul. Nothing can stand in its way. So here are the greatest obstacles. What are the greatest obstacles that you could think of between then or here and now, right? I just said that two different ways, right? Now and then, that's the right way. Between now and then, between now when we have this verdict, if we're trusting in Christ, And the then, the final judgment, some of the 
greatest hurdles that you can think of, Paul's going to set them up and then he's going to knock them over. That's essentially what he's doing in this passage. First of all, it's going to be not death, chapter 5. Then it's going to be not your sin, chapter 6. And then he's going to go back one more time to the law of Moses. And I think what he says about the law of Moses would apply to any kind of legal system. So even though most of us tonight aren't Jewish and we don't wrestle with, well, should I be keeping the Sabbath and food laws? What he says there will apply to any kind of legalistic framework that we set up. So those are the obstacles. Between now and glory, there's death, there's our own personal sin, and then there's law-keeping. But none of those three things are obstacles to the hope of glory, which is the overarching theme. What God has begun, having justified and reconciled us, He will bring to a triumphant conclusion and save us from wrath. So let's just get a sneak preview here of the the first paragraph. So in verses 1 through 11, I think the main point is that we can rejoice because those who have been justified will also be glorified. Nobody gets lost in the way. All, the whole group of people who get justified, they're going to be the same group of people that are glorified. No, no stragglers. Why? Because we've received, one, peace with God, two, access into a new realm of grace, And number three, we have the hope of glory. We can even rejoice in our trials because they will lead to greater hope in our future salvation. Our hope is based on the firm foundation of God's love, and God's love has been demonstrated in the way he gave Christ for the ungodly. He's already done the harder thing for you and I. He already found us when we were ungodly, and he sent his son to die for us. So now that we've been adopted into his family, is he going to let us fall away? Is he going to turn his back on us now that we've actually been made right in his son? No, he's not going to do that. God has taken people who were previously his enemies and reconciled them. That's verse 9. If God has already done this harder thing, reconciliation, he will do the easier thing, i.e. save those who are now his friends from, from wrath. Okay? So let's just look at the very first bullet point, and then we'll go to break. So at the bottom of page 28, very familiar verse, verse 1 of chapter 5, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, so he's, he's turning the page now to a new section. He's assuming that you believe that everything he said before is true. That means now that you have three great gifts. You have one, you have peace with God. Number two, you have access into this grace. We'll have to talk about what that means. And then number three, you have the hope of glory. All right? So that's a good place to stop. When we come back, we'll tackle those three. So let's take our break. Again, try to. We got a couple people coming in from the break yet. So we're picking up at the bottom of page 28 in the notes. And we're beginning chapter 5. Right before the break, we had talked about the three great gifts or benefits that have come to everyone who's been justified through faith. The first one there, peace with God, that refers to the fact that the hostility between God and us has been removed. God no longer has a reason to pour out His wrath upon us. 
the turning the page, that second blessing there, it's access. That's the same word that's used in Ephesians 3.12 to describe our ability to approach our king. So it does have the idea in, in, in several places where you know someone wants to go into the king's throne room. So you could imagine like the Esther story and she has to get permission in order to have access. That definitely seems to be how Paul's using it in Ephesians 3. But I think here he's also probably more likely thinking of a realm. So not so much you going into God's presence in prayer, although that's true. He's also thinking of a realm in which now grace reigns or rules. That's different than the realm or the sphere that you used to live. You used to be in a a realm, a world that was dominated by sin and death. And he didn't just leave you there and forgive you. He actually grabbed you and brought you into a new realm. It's, it's a way of, in kind of um, metaphorical language, describing the radical change that's taken place in our life. And he's going to return to this when we get to chapter 6, this idea of being in two different realms. But at least here he's saying you now have access to this, this new situation, this new way of living. And you only got there because of God's grace through Christ. Um, notice here in Romans that we receive this peace and access, not on our own merits, but through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says that again for the second blessing. He says, through whom, but that's clearly referring back to Jesus. The third blessing, the hope of the glory of God, it refers to the confidence that believers possess that they will one day reflect God's image thus fulfilling the original purpose of their creation and reversing the effects of sin. So when we were in chapter 3, we saw that there was, there was an original purpose for us. We were supposed to reflect God's glory to the degree that we can as humans. We were supposed to be like God in this world, representing Him. And we've all fallen way short of that goal. But we now have a hope that someday that will be restored. So he's not just saying the hope of glory as in the hope of heaven. He's saying more than that. He's saying the hope of heaven or eventually the hope of the new heavens and the earth is also a hope of you again glorifying God to the degree that you were originally created to. You again now will be able to do what originally Adam was charged with doing, Adam and Eve both. And it's not hope as in I hope it happens. But it's a certainty. It's a confidence. You actually do have this hope of glory. So he says there at the end, believers can boast. They can rejoice would be another way of translating it. He's going to use boast here several different times. Don't think boast in a, like a braggadocious sense, like a very negative sense. He's just saying that this is something that you can rejoice in, Okay might be like the way a grandparent boasts over their grandchild, right? It's not just bragging, but it's also a rejoicing. It's, it's, a, it's a happiness. It's a, it's a delight, okay? Paul says if there's something in your life that you really want to boast about in this positive sense, then boast in the Lord. Boast in Jesus Christ and what he's, he's accomplished for you. So we have this great hope we, that we can even boast in in suffering, So verse 3, he says, even if you're going through suffering, 
you can still rejoice or boast because you have this hope. The reason why you can keep on, so he uses that little word because there to show us that he's, he's getting to a reason, is because this perseverance in trials will lead to proven character. And proven character will lead to an even stronger hope than if we had not gone through the trial at all. Moo says here, sufferings rather than threatening or weakening our hope, as we might expect them to be the case, will instead increase our certainty in that hope. Hope, like a muscle, will not be strong if it goes unused. So you can actually become stronger in your hope if you go through a trial and persevere, and then it becomes a pattern in your life of perseverance that becomes your character, which you're known by, and then that proven character then will increase to even greater hope, like a muscle that just gets stronger as you exercise. Furthermore, and another reason, is that this hope will not put us to shame. It won't disappoint us. Paul uses a word here that's often used in the Greek Old Testament for an unfavorable verdict by God. So this shame here, it's a strong word. It's not just saying, like, I'm embarrassed. This is shame as in you going to the final judgment and getting a guilty verdict. It's that kind of shame, the kind of shame where you would hang your head in defeat in front of a judge. Paul's saying your hope is not going to lead to that. You're not going to have to face that kind of shame. Believers will not experience this unfavorable verdict. Why? Because, he says, God's love has been poured out in their hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So what's, what's Paul's logic here? I mean, he starts with the first premise that God loves us. Number two, we're made aware of this love by means of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. So if you know tonight that God loves you, you know that not just because you're smarter than the other person. You know that because you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. He makes you aware of the fact that God loves you. And this love then of God that we experience through the Spirit, three, it gives us a reason to have confident hope. So then because he's brought up love in verses 6 through 8, he describes what kind of love it is that we say that God has towards us. So these are familiar verses, but let me just read these, verses 6 through 8. He says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So notice he calls us powerless. There was nothing that we could do to save ourselves. He calls us ungodly. There was nothing good about us that God would look at and think, oh yeah, he looks like a likely candidate to send my son to die for. No, there was nothing desirable about us. We, we were ungodly when Christ decided to die for us. So you notice that close connection. He, he's very comfortable talking about God's love and then shifting to Christ dying for us. He doesn't see that as a contradiction. It's not like a normal father-son relationship. Like you wouldn't say, well, you know, Ryan really loves me and then point to the fact that my son did something, right? 
that would seem like a strange connection between the two of us as individuals. But in our one God, who is also three, you can say those types of things. That God's love for us is demonstrated by the fact that Christ loves us and that Christ died for us. And Paul's very comfortable going back and forth between the two of those. So turning the page there to verses 9 through 10, Paul says in verse 9, Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? So Paul here contrasts the two things that God has already done for believers. So the first one is in verse 9, it's justification. And then in verse 10, it's reconciliation. He says, For if while we were still God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? So, as I put it up here on the slide also, if God has already accomplished the more challenging thing, forgiving his enemies and making them his friends, we can be confident that he will do the easier thing, saving those forgiven friends from the coming wrath. The, the person's already in the boat with you. They're already your friend. You've already expressed love towards them. You're not then going to decide to shove them out of the boat. If you were going to decide to do that, you would have done it back when they were your enemy and they were outside of the boat. Maybe if they were your enemy and you were going along, you might have just decided to leave them. But now that you've grabbed them and you've forgiven them and you've reconciled them, you now consider them your child, you're not then going to decide to abandon them. That's, that's Paul's argument. Paul, that God has already done the harder thing in justifying us and reconciling us. So in addition, not only do we have this future salvation to look forward to, he says, not only in this so, verse 11, but we can also presently boast or again rejoice because of the reconciliation provided through our Lord Jesus Christ. As when we get a little further in the notes, I'll I'll try to show you all the different places that he refers to our union with Christ. But you've already seen a bunch of them, right? It's, it's through Jesus Christ. It's in Christ Jesus. It's in Jesus. All of these benefits that we receive are because of our connection to Christ. But then that brings us to one of our more challenging paragraphs. So verses 12 through 21, he's going to set up this famous contrast and comparison between Adam and Christ. Before we even get into the actual content, though, it's helpful just to step back for a second and remind ourselves why he's talking about this. So remember, he's trying to go through these hurdles. The hurdles are death, sin, and then the law. And he's going to go all through those. Well, the first one is death. You know, we're still going to die. There's still a sense where all of us as humans, we're, we're not really looking forward to death. We're not maybe as worried about what's on the other side, but the process itself doesn't sound too exciting to us. And death is still an enemy. It's still something ugly in this world. So what does that enemy of death pose as an obstacle or a challenge to the Christian's hope of glory? That's what he's trying to get at. So if I try to paraphrase his, his argument here, and I give it to you up here on the screen as well. Paul's saying, in order to accomplish this salvation just described in the previous section, 
there ex exists a union between believers and Jesus, which is like, but greater than, the union they had with Adam. So the union that they had in Adam brought death. That's why we die, is because we were connected to Adam. So what Paul is trying to say, you have a similar connection to Christ, but it's also a greater connection. It's better than what you had in Adam, and it's a life-giving connection. And so that life-giving connection with Christ will overcome any of the, the possible effects of that initial connection that you had with your first ancestor. So Paul's already described how we receive justification and reconciliation through Jesus, and he can be confident that it has occurred. A potential obstacle here is death, and he's going to address that. Going down to the next bullet point, he addresses this potential obstacle by going through a series of contrasts and comparisons. And I'm going to put these up here on a chart that's also the, the next page. So the emphasized points come in the second half of the contrasts and comparisons. So it's always Christ is better than Adam. So the things that Paul emphasizes are always going to be in the right column when he refers to Christ. So it would be a mistake just to say that Christ is like Adam. That's not saying enough. He's like him in some ways, but he's also far better in what he's going to accomplish. One way this is sometimes illustrated, just think of yourself walking into a museum. Okay? What would be the harder thing to do? For you to run around in that museum with paint, crayons, markers, sharpies, and destroy all the artwork, or to go back after it's been destroyed and completely restore it back to what it was. Which would be the harder action? It's the restoring, right? And that's the difference between Adam and Christ. Yes, Adam had a powerful effect over our race. He brought us all into sin. And before we get too quick to blame him, if we had been in his shoes, we would have done the same thing. But Christ has done the far greater work because he's now found all these ruined masterpieces and he's made them whole again. So this is why it's, it's not just like Adam, but it's also greater. So he starts out there at the top of page 31, which is also this chart. In verse 12, he points to the fact that sin and death entered the world through Adam. So again, you know, this is worth just repeating because Genesis is so often attacked in our culture, in our day, that Paul just assumes that this is true. He reads Genesis 1 through 11 as being true historic narrative. Uh, there, there was an Adam. There was one man that all of us go back to and that before Adam, there was no death. Uh, it's just very hard to square any kind of theory about our origins that puts death whether that's animal death, fossils, whatever you name it, if it comes on the other side of Adam, that's very problematic to what Paul's saying here. He seems to assume that Genesis can be taken at face value, that Adam was our first ancestor, and that until he sinned, there was no death of any kind in this world. I just don't see any other way of understanding what Paul says here. So let me begin there at that first bullet point. So in the beginning of verse 12... Paul refers to spiritual death, which leads to physical death. So I'm looking at verse 12 here. He says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. So I think at this point, yet yeah, he's not talking about physical death. 
he's talking about spiritual death. And I point you there to Genesis 2.17. Remember what God said to Adam? When you eat it, or some of us still remember the King James, in the day, or I think it said, right? In the day that you eat of it, you're going to die. I remember as a kid reading that story, I'm like, well, that didn't really come true. <laughs> he didn't die right away. He's, he goes on, he has children. It, it seemed initially maybe that God wasn't telling the truth. But my misconception there was that God was talking about physical death. Physical death is the consequence that comes later, but there was spiritual death initially. It's, it's like the Christmas tree that you bring home. If you do a real Christmas tree, right? That tree's dead as soon as you bring it home because you cut it off, right? You can try to nurse it along with some water, but it's dying. So it's been cut off from its life source, and eventually it's really going to look dead when it gets all brown and crispy. Once we were spiritually dead, inevitably we would physically die. But what Genesis 2 is pointing to is that fundamental, that more initial spiritual death that came to Adam immediately as soon as he disobeyed God for the very first time. So verse, the end of verse 12 there, when he sinned, death came into the world, spiritual death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. So that's one of our first very tricky passages, right, in this section. He could be saying nothing more than that humans sin because they're dead spiritually from conception. So that's how some people take it. So you sin because you were born spiritually dead. In other words, we're spiritually dead because of Adam's sin and thus commit all individual sins. And I give you one writer. However, as the passage later clarifies, and this is going to become really clear when you get to verse 16 and verse 19, Paul's likely talking about the one act of Adam from which all men are accountable and for which all spiritually and physically die. So let's just say for the sake of argument, Paul isn't saying that here. He is definitely going to be saying it in just a couple verses. So I think this is one of those places where the Bible is clear to us. It's, it's true, and what it says is clear, but that doesn't actually mean that each specific statement we know exactly what it means. There's all kinds of statements in the scripture that I'm not sure what they mean. That's my personal experience. What does it mean to, to pray for the dead? You know, what does it mean that women are supposed to wear head coverings because of the angels in Corinth? There's all these strange things that I'm not sure about. And my, my experience in talking to other Christians is they feel the same way. But what we all find as Christians is that the basic overarching message of Scripture is clear. That even if there's things here and there in a paragraph we don't understand, we understand paragraphs. We can follow the argument. So that's what I'm pointing to here. I'm not 100% sure I know what Paul means in verse 12, but I'm pretty certain I know what he means in verses 16 and 19. He's eventually going to get to the point that when Adam sinned, that sin then we were all held accountable for. His sin was credited to our account. So before he gets to that, he takes a little bit of a parenthesis. So that's why I've got that in gray up there. So verses 13 through 14 are a parenthesis where he addresses the law. So he pauses from his central argument to explain how those who lived under the Mosaic law are included in all the sin. You see how that would be a potential, or a, a potential challenge. Well, the argument could go, well, 
Adam sinned because he had a law that was given to him. He had a commandment. You know, you should not eat from this tree. And then he did it. But what about all those people that lived between Adam and the giving of the law of Moses? You know, most of his Jewish readers would have been pretty comfortable saying, yeah, once we had the law of Moses, it was real clear what we were supposed to do. But what about that in-between time? You see how that would be a little bit of a challenge? Those people weren't given specific written laws. So in what sense then were they sinners? So let's try to see if we can figure out how Paul responds to that. He's going to say here in verses 13 through 14, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. So I think here Paul's not saying that sins committed by people before Moses were not counted against them. There's been good men who have argued that. I give you John Murray as an example of a good commentator who took that position. He basically said that they weren't actually credited with their sins during that in-between time. But that would seem to violate a lot of the things that Paul said earlier in this letter. He's even gone as far as saying that people can be sinners apart from the law. That people actually sin, and that's demonstrated by the fact that they violate their own conscience. They have a law written on their hearts. Remember when he said that in chapter 2? So because of that, I think instead, Paul argues that people still died during this period as sinners, despite not having an invoice that specifically pointed out the nature and consequences of those sins. We don't have any DTE workers here, do we? Anybody work for DTE before I tell my story? <laughs> All right. So I, I, realized, I realized to my shame that I forgot a bill this last month. All right, I'm going to blame the postal service. Any postal workers here? So I didn't get the bill. So I get a bill from DTE saying that I missed last month and I have so many weeks to pay or they're going to shut off my power. So I'm quickly scrambling to pay this bill, right? And I went back and checked. Yeah, sure enough, there was one month I didn't pay. So I didn't have the bill. I didn't have the invoice from DT saying I owed it. But did I still owe it? Yeah, I still owed it. It was still credited to my account. I was still in violation of the agreement that they give me power and I like the power, so I give them money, right? So once I broke that, I was a trespasser. I had broken a law. I didn't need the piece of paper telling me that I'd done it. I think that's what Paul's saying here, is that those people, yeah, you couldn't point to a specific written code. You couldn't point to the tablets. You couldn't point to anything like what Adam had, where God had said something face-to-face with him, but they were still sinners. You're still sinners when you violate your own conscience, which is something that we all do. And you don't need a written law from God in order to confirm it. And so he points to the fact that they died. So his evidence that they were still sinners is that they died. His point being there that God would have been unjust to let people die if they weren't sinners. You see how that works? So going on to the bottom of page 31 and flipping the page, the fact that they died proves they were accountable for their sins. Therefore, the people who lived prior to the giving of the Mosaic Law demonstrate that they also were conceived spiritually dead because of Adam's sin and then went on to commit their own sins. As Thielman puts it, Paul's primary point 
is that in the period when people only had an internal and somewhat vague sense of what God required, and before anyone had been entrusted with the oracles of God, as he put it in chapter 3, they still sinned against God and received the penalty of death. All right, so verse 16 is going to be the highly controversial one, and I actually give you a bunch of options, and I'll give you a week to look at those and think about it and you can ask me questions when we get back, because we only have a couple minutes, but any, any last questions for tonight? All right, well, thank you for being here, and uh, Lord willing, I'll see you in a week, and I hope it goes well for you.